0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Flipside. This is, as ever, the podcast that brings to you important discussions about the past, prompted by specific historical events. This month, I'm joined by Professor Richard Hingley, who is a professor currently at the University of Durham in the UK. Professor Hingley is a specialist in the archaeology of Rome and Iron Age Britain and Spain, and also has an exceeding interest in heritage theory and historiographies. Professor Hingley has written a great many really outstanding books and is one of the premier authors on Hadrian's Wall. Two of his most recent publications are Hadrian's Wall, A Life, which can be found in Oxford University Press, and also Londinium, a biography, Roman London from its origins to the 5th century. Professor Hingley is also involved in numerous projects which vary in nature from tourism studies at Hadrian's Wall to more reception-based studies of Romans and Roman culture in the public reception. I truly cannot thank Professor Hingley enough for agreeing to appear on this month's episode of Flipside. This month's talk is inspired by events which occurred on the 16th of July in 1945, when Winston Churchill, Harry S. Truman and Joseph Stalin met at Pottersdam in Germany to decide the future of a defeated Germany. Unfortunately, part of these talks inspired a great many divisions, both physically and philosophically, and did influence the coming Cold War, with the... Planned construction of the Berlin Wall. Thus, this month's episode will focus on boundaries, borders, and frontiers. And perhaps an excellent place to start is the potential differences between these. And there is actually some argument in terms of definition, but there is also some agreement. So, from what I've read, Boundaries are often what we consider to be more physical representations of division. They're often what archaeologists use to refer to walls or other structures which have divided a site or indeed a landscape. Borders have a more geopolitical meaning in that they're often associated with a ruling state and don't have the caveat of having to be physically marked. Frontiers, on the other hand, have held a lot of contention in terms of their definition. Some have described them as places of cultural exchange or difference, a way to divide a landscape perhaps between two differing cultures, and the key word there would be exchange. Admittedly, that's a more anthropological definition. In terms of environment studies and landscape theory, a frontier is a marginal environment which exists exists between two different environments. For example, dunelands are often considered to be frontier environments between the sea or ocean and inland environments. I would be really interested to know your opinion on this, Professor.
1: Yeah, there are various different definitions. in archaeology i suppose you know historically frontiers can be quite specific things physical things like uh, the berlin wall or hadrian's wall but academically people got rather concerned about the sort of monumentalizing attitude to a frontier um decades ago and the sort of contemporary view of frontiers as sort of zones of transformation i think is an academic reaction to that monumentalization or sort of tangible tangible heritage attitude to frontiers are sort of really substantial physical things. So from the 1980s or so, uh, we had a new interpretation that stressed the idea of frontiers as more transformational, uh, places that people come together and sort of interact. Now, borders, I think I'd agree, tend to be things that are sort of diff- more difficult to tie down I mean, one of the experiences I had a few years ago talking to somebody who works in border studies. So border studies is a sort of academic field of research which is uh, transdisciplinary. So archaeologists aren't always very involved in it, but it involves a lot of people in sort of cultural studies and art and anthropology. So this bloke I was speaking to, who's a border studies specialist, he's a geographer actually, um, was saying that, you know, these boundaries can actually be um, basically as much uh, digital or, um, you know, they can be things that are maintained through surveillance. They don't have to be geographic so much. So things like citizenship can actually, and that's a very current issue, you know, just at the moment, obviously, Things like citizenship can actually maintain boundaries, but they're broader. So they depend on technology, digital technology or whatever. I got really interested in that, to be honest, because uh, it struck me that the Roman Empire is like that because you have Roman citizenship. So if you're a Roman citizen, you have elevated status in Roman society. You can be living anywhere within the Roman Empire or actually beyond the Roman Empire and you have that elevated status. You could be beyond the Roman frontiers, but uh, basically you still have the status and you can travel anywhere you want within the Roman realm because you know, you're know you an important, privileged person. So I think you know the definition of these different terms is really, really complex. I tend to resist being over-analytical. I tend to think you can use the concepts, but they're all representative of something that you need to get your mind around, something that isn't that well-defined and that needs thinking about in particular situations. So you can compare different boundaries or different frontiers from different periods and try and use your intellect to actually understand the way they operate
0: it's a really good point not to get too caught up in defining these things especially as the lack of definition in a way enables us to analyze better the specific nuances of specific borders or boundaries or frontiers In terms of modern scholarship, I'd agree that frontiers have seen more examination in terms of their definition, and I think there's definitely a lean towards considering them areas of cultural hybridization or mixing. In terms of interesting examples to compare and fit into this sort of theory I've often considered folklore and fable specifically to do with woodlands or rivers, where they are considered physical boundaries within the landscape in early cultures in the UK and elsewhere, actually. But the boundaries or borders themselves are also spiritual in aspect in terms of the folklore associated with them and actually that tends to be what lasts is the stories which are associated with these physical forms rather than the physical boundary forms themselves. Rivers in particular were highly ritualized spaces and that's created a boundary between the physical and spiritual or theoretical, especially as uh, rivers and bodies of water themselves are considered in many early cultures to be areas of transition, uh, specifically associated with mortuary cult often. Hmm.
1: I really like the concept of the debatable land which is a literary concept which actually derives, as I understand it, from the uh, English-Scottish border. So it's used, it's not used very widely in literature, but it's used by some people who work within literature. And it's derived from the medieval borderlands. Uh, between England and Scotland, which was an area which was not really within the jurisdiction of either kingdom. And i have played around a bit with the idea of Hadrian's Wall and that frontier region as it comes down through time as debatable land. But of course, thinking about what you're talking about, you know, if you think about folklore and ritual, we have debatable lands conceptually all over the place, don't we? Not just in these zones that tend to be defined as frontier regions.
0: Yeah, debatable land is a really interesting concept and I think it would be brilliant if more was done about it, particularly in archaeology, because these concepts of border and boundary can often be quite big concepts and that neglects the fact that borders and boundaries existed on a communal level between communities in various guises, whether that was two communities which held to different religions or two communities which believed different things about a tract of land. But of course, that leads back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of monumentalizing these concepts of border and boundary when we talk about definitions. This then would seem like the more practical aspect to that argument.
1: We've been we've been having a sort of debate just around where I live. I live in a really nice rural area, uh, very close to Durham, but. Um, there are a couple of very popular footpaths that go past and we've got a bit of a sort of slight problem that a lot of people have across the UK and probably Europe at the moment because a lot of new people are coming down the footpaths who don't really understand necessarily fully how the landscape is managed. So basically they let their dogs run through the woodland where we've had ground nesting birds nesting for the last, well, the last millennia, <laughs> I suspect. And um if you talk to them, they sometimes are quite sympathetic and sometimes aren't so sympathetic. But um, it's a sort of debatable land because I feel some ownership over it because I live here, although I don't own it. It's actually owned by the cathedral. Other people obviously are coming in and they they like it, but they don't necessarily understand. I think that's how I'd see it. So, you know, this concept of debatable lands I think is really interesting because I have a take on the debatable lands I sort of live within and I know a lot of people in this neighbourhood agree with me, if you take something like a major frontier work, getting us back to the sort of concepts of things that are really substantial and tangible, I mean, if, you know, what I think of frontier works is uh, something like Trump's Wall or the Berlin Wall or Hadrian's Wall, these are often seen in very simple ways by quite a lot of people. So people have a conception of a frontier as something very divisive, and intended to be divisive you can take that positively or negatively so you can be concerned about it you know this is a major issue in america and has been under donald trump that people seem to divide into those who are very opposed to what is happening with that frontier work and people are very supportive of it And that debatable issue almost goes out the window, doesn't it? Because people are so certain of their attitudes, very simplistic, and basically doesn't really go anywhere.
0: In that respect, then, if people's own surety can impact on whether something is debatable land or not, then what role does intentionality have in the function of a border? Does a border or a boundary only become so when the right intention is behind it? And in what ways can intentionality sort of develop over time so that the function or belief associated with these concepts um, develops
1: well, I think that's a complex issue. I, I, if we go back to Hadrian's Wall, I am probably know more about Hadrian's Wall. So I, I read very, very widely in sort of cultural studies and border studies, and I read about modern frontiers. But my emphasis is always on going back and trying to understand the Roman frontier, I suppose, if that makes sense. And I got sort of sidetracked onto developing. I'm, I'm really interested in art projects and artworks that have uh, been inspired by Trump's Wall, for instance. And I've got a wonderful, two wonderful books which look at those. And I sort of get into reading those and they expand my memory and my mind. But I, I think... Um, If I turn back to Hadrian's Wall, there's a major issue, I think, as to how effective it was and who planned it. Now, I think I'm very driven to the idea, and I'll explain why, that actually the Emperor Emperor Hadrian had a major input into dictating that this wall should be built, and he probably had a lot of power over the way it was actually constructed. Now, he came to Britain for a short period in AD 122, But um, he didn't stay in Britain very long, but, you know, emperors were very, very powerful people. And he had a lot of people who worked with him effectively. And the archaeological interpretation has tended to be increasingly over the last 50 years that the emperor doesn't have that much input, you know, in the distant frontier province like Britain. But I've been writing a book on the conquest of Roman Britain, which has just gone to the printer this week. And I've been looking at the inspiration of emperors and senior provincial officials like governors. Now, this has become very unpopular in archaeology. Ancient historians still look at these senior sort of powerful men, but archaeologists have sort of got on to other things. But I think we have to look at the role of powerful people because, I mean, Trump, you know, he's out of power now. He did have quite, I mean, it's debatable how much of the wall in America between America and Mexico, he managed to actually get constructed. You might get back into power again. People are partly the result of their times. And I think that really suggests to me that we can't ignore the role of sort of, you know, these men who dominate or try to dominate the world. And I think Hadrian, you know, he's seen very positively by most ancient historians and archaeologists, but I think he had a major role. Now, if you follow that logic, The intentionality of constructing this major frontier work, you know, it's inspired by an all-powerful emperor who's got a lot of support within Rome and within the province, and he's got things working against him too. But that suggests that, you know, you have this substantial Roman frontier, which stays in use for almost three centuries, which is an immense period of time. You know, thinking about frontiers in the modern world, the Berlin Wall, Uh, The Iron Curtain didn't survive for anything like that length of time. And he constructs this work, which seems to have such a powerful role. But then we need to think about what that role is, because how effective was it? Now, if you go back 10 or 15 years, people tend to feel that it was actually highly permeable, that you could cross it quite easily. I mean, you'd have to have the support of the Roman military stationed along the wall, but it's got gateways at very regular intervals across it. And At times, people have suggested it's not really operating to control movement very much at all. It's more constructed to um, monitor movement and perhaps to control and tax people. However, maybe it's the effect of what's happening in the world now or the proliferation of sort of frontier works. I think the generation of people working on the wall now are going back to an older interpretation again that the wall is actually probably quite an effective boundary which is really intended to stop people or certain people moving across its line. So if you aren't a military officer, you're not somebody that Romans want to um, encourage to do whatever you're doing north of the wall, you're not going to be allowed to cross it. And I think the way a lot of people who work on Hadrian's Wall are now looking at the physical structure of those frontier works which in themselves form a landscape because there's a depth to them, they're not just a single wall. It's now tending to be seen much more as a fairly effective police line, which probably prevents a lot of people from keeping contact. So if you're from a community living in what is now Northern England to the south of Hadrian's Hall, and you want to go and see your kin, people you've been allied to and intermarrying with and friendly with for uh, millennia or generations, and your communities have strong ties with, you're not necessarily gonna be allowed to cross that line. And you're not necessarily even gonna be allowed to sail around the coast to see them because the Roman Navy controlled the sea. So I tend to see Hadrian's Wall, and I'm not the only person who works on the wall, as something which is really quite effective when it's built. Now, how long that function is maintained, we don't know, because there are indications it may cease to be quite um, such a divisive boundary as time goes on. And the Romans are always messing around with people to the north. But uh, I think... If you look at it as a piece of imperial intentionality, if you look at it as a political and military statement, it probably is highly effective. And uh, it's a limitation of imperial territory. So it's the ending of Roman ambition to conquer the North. They still want to control the North. But you know it is something that has a major impact and is sustained through time. And you can look at Modern frontier works the same way, I suppose. I mean, I I think the Mexican frontier is really interesting. I, I haven't been looking so much at it since we had the change of government in America. I know there are major problems in America with um, the uh, new government trying still, obviously, to control migration, which if they want to be elected, presumably they really have to, but they're trying to... Publicly, at least, to be more humane about it. But I think there's also quite a lot of information to indicate that Trump's wall isn't really necessarily very effective as a way of stopping people crossing its line. I think it... I'm not an expert on it. I think it's still not continuous, as I understand it. And there are communities that are completely divided by it, which I'm sure are determined to continue cooperating across the line. Um, In other words, the Israeli separation fence, or whatever that you want to call that one, Um, Again, you know, there are lots of things that make the relations either side of that line much more complex. I know that, but I'm not an expert on that frontier either. I think all these things can be so complex, but the intention behind them can be quite powerful.
0: I should probably clarify that to begin with, my understanding of Hadrian's Wall actually probably comes from the opposite end of things in terms of... I study late prehistory within Scotland and primarily that has meant recently studying lowland Scotland in the Iron Age, specifically the site of Trepain Law, which definitely had significant influence with the Romans and benefited in some ways from their presence. In that sense, I can only consider intention on a developmental level. Because I don't think you can argue that when the wall was built, it had an intention of defense and slash or an intention of monumentalizing, intimidating And the reason I don't think you can argue against that is because of the way the wall is situated within the landscape. Whilst by no means does the landscape always enhance the intention of the wall, in some areas you can clearly see that the route that the wall has taken intentionally makes use of natural boundaries within the landscape, cliffs, steep slopes areas of high ground, rivers, and actually also areas which are more inclined to marsh or bogland. In this way, the wall enhances pre-existing defensive features within the landscape, whilst also in some areas being situated on higher ground, making sure that the wall itself is seen and visible for miles And Whilst that may have been its earliest intention, it seems clear that later generations, when the wall had been abandoned by the Roman military, used the wall for other purposes, including but not limited to as a sort of quarry for reuse of materials. Perhaps later generations just were pragmatic about the fact that, well, the materials there, we might as well use it. Or perhaps the intention was by these communities that it was a reclaiming or retaking of their landscape by damaging this border, which had perhaps separated some communities for centuries. In any case, this intention is clearly one which is developmental. Potential exists as well that over the centuries, perhaps it became more of a cultural division where people defined themselves by which side of the wall they existed on. And I think that that fits as well with modern examples like Trump's wall, where currently people still have those links which bridge that physical boundary, but over time might begin to define themselves differently depending on which side of the wall they Typically exist on. Of course, with these things, you can absolutely never argue in absolutes because it's extremely rare for someone to definitively say and then be able to maintain that a boundary, border, or frontier has a specific purpose. And because you don't have this absolute definition and so many people are so often involved with these concepts and structures in various capacities that everyone involved will have a different intention for that boundary or border or frontier because they will have a different and unique experience of it. And I know Professor Hingley wants to comment on this. Um, So we'll have our short ad break and then we'll see you back in a moment.
2: If you're listening to this, then you're getting something out of the Archaeology Podcast Network. We've got volunteers from around the world helping bring these podcasts to you. We want to do more, though, and we can do it with your support. For 7 US dollars per month, you can support us and get a little in return. For details, go to archpodnet.com slash members. That's archpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach. And
1: I think to an extent, one of the things that strikes me is If you look at the way archaeologists think, and I wouldn't suggest that people in other disciplines are different. I mean, if you look at history or border studies, it's probably the same. A lot of it is either thinking very critically and negatively about where we are today. So you think about frontiers in the modern world and you think, you know, the Roman frontier is an example of why we should be so deeply worried. Or alternately, it's being almost romantic in your attitude. So it's taking a modern situation and actually thinking the past was much better. And I think both of those approaches are probably wrong. However, I don't think you can avoid it. Um, one thing that I think is relevant to that is a lot of the works that look at art and cultural frontiers. And, if you want, this is one of the things that slightly concerns me about a lot of the work in border studies, which communicates frontiers as transformative cultural experiences for people. That I think that's very well intentioned. So if you want to take, a you know, a frontier, a divisive frontier, and think about it artistically, and culturally, you can do that to try and sort of make the whole idea of a frontier slightly and negative. And as I say, you know, I'm really interested in some of the things that have been done to actually communicate that with the uh, Trump, with Trump's wall, the Mexican frontier in the USA. However, that, does that lessen our concerns about frontiers? You know, if we follow that logic, if we make a frontier an inclusive, uh, transformative experience for the people who live on it, does that then weaken our critique of how frontiers operate today?
0: I think the practice of comparing and contrasting these features is really useful and interesting. And transformative interpretation, when it's applied to a boundary or a border or a frontier, I think has to be slightly tentative because you're talking about real individuals' experiences quite often. And often the experience associated with such features is negative. When talking about the transformative nature of something like this, I think you have to consider longevity. And to do that, I would really look at what is represented by these features archaeologically. And considering Trump's wall, I think that as a feature, it really has negligible archaeological impact It's really something which will last in people's memories, possibly longer than it would as an archaeological residue or feature. Whereas the opposite is really true for Hadrian's War, which has lasted for centuries as a physical feature, but has been distorted and reconsidered in people's memories. So in this sense, both features are already on a really basic level transformative one becoming something of really little physical impact and the other becoming something completely other, potentially, to what it was originally intended for in people's memory.
1: Yeah, I, I, there's a lot there that really interests me. I I, uh, I think I'll start off by saying, I for prime law, I, I work in the Iron Age as well as the Roman period, and I spent 10 years as an inspector of ancient monuments in Scotland. And uh, at that time, my interests were mainly in the Iron Age. So uh, I did quite a lot of work on broch settlements in the Highlands of Scotland. And got fascinated by um, clearance period landscapes. You know, the, the, the whole landscape's really well-preserved. 18th and early 19th century settlement from people who were cleared off those lands and quite often ended up um, going to the... Uh, North America or South America or Australia or whatever. But uh, I used to live about three or four miles from Law, So in a little town called Haddington, it's quite a seat-sided whale-backed hill with an Iron Age hill fort on top. So I'm still fascinated by uh, Roman-Iron Age interaction in the north. And... Uh, I agree with you, Um, Hadrian's Wall has this major impact on how people can operate at the time. But I go back a bit earlier because I think um, looking at the wall through time, which you were talking about, and I very much agree with that sort of approach. We can't imagine, you know, it's established as one thing and stays that way for three centuries. Going back a bit earlier in the wall, we have um, what we believe is an earlier frontier called the Stain Gate. Now the Stain Gate to me is really interesting because it's not really necessarily a frontier initially because Roman concepts of frontiers are changing through time. Initially, it's constructed probably as a communication route with a few forts along it, including the world-famous fort at Vindolanda, which is established in the mid-80s. Now, um, the same gate, I think, increasingly can be seen best as something that's actually cooperating with people locally. Because although they build um, forts along the western and central lengths of this um, system, as it becomes a frontier in the late 1st century, early 2nd century, so before the Wall Wall's built, they don't go right to the east coast. So we have no forts east of Corbridge. And one of the arguments recently, and this is quite a contentious argument potentially because you know the information is quite limited, is that perhaps we have a friendly community, you know, a community that don't need controlling in the eastern part of that land, so particularly to the north of the river Tyne, in what is now the Northumberland coastal plain. So the Romans are cooperating potentially with people. Actually, at Vindolanda, we have round buildings in the earliest phase of the civil settlement. So in the early second century, we have some round timber buildings, which could actually be local people coming and settling by a fort and cooperating with the garrison there. And I think if you follow this through, the most logical thing is, well, we have problems then uh, around the time Hadrian, the Emperor Hadrian's comes to power. And this cooperative system, which they're trying to build up, you know, that operates across the whole of the south of the province, because they managed to persuade the local elites who actually established control over their own communities. It breaks down in this frontier region. Then the wall is a really divisive thing, potentially. As you say, As time goes on in the later second century, you know, after the wall's built. And into the third century, you get quite a community building up along the wall. And we know there are people from right over the Roman Empire, right across the Roman Empire, who come and live on Hadrian's Wall. And we know the identities of quite a lot of these people. One of the most famous is Regina, who dies and is buried at South Shields. And she, on her inscription, is described as a member of the Catch of Aloni. So she's from a Kivitas, for a people in eastern England, well to the South Wall. And she was married to a, what we believe was a Syrian trader called Baratis, from Palmyra. So we have all these communities of people who are living in this frontier landscape. We don't know, however, how much they're cooperating with people locally. We don't find that local settlements develop in a way that is at all Roman. So as we all know very well, we still have roundhouses being built, and we don't have a lot of imports from the Roman empire on these sites, the occasional coin, pieces of pottery. Now there's a sort of concept that people might be quite resistant and I think you can imagine we've got this Roman frontier occupying force that Iron age people uh, and their descendants may be quite resistant to these people. After all, think of the impact they have on your landscape. I mean, there are thousands of soldiers stationed along this wall. So we don't know if these communities that build up along the south of the wall um, in the civil settlements and the two towns are actually um, including local people They may be because you may go and live in a civil settlement or a town and effectively live like you were a Roman because we don't find roundhouses after the uh, early 2nd century in any of these settlements. And we can't really identify people, so we can't tell. But I still think it's quite likely until the late Roman period there is quite a lot of resistance occurring to uh, Roman occupation of these lands. And then when you get into the late Roman period – the soldiers at forts effectively become local because early on they're transferred from other parts of the empire to the frontier. But as time goes on, military personnel start being recruited locally. So I think you'd imagine by the late third, early fourth century and throughout the fourth century that the military units stationed at the forts along the wall are actually effectively local communities. Doesn't mean necessarily that they're cooperating with the communities living around them, though, because they may be descended and have stories of their origins, which go back to where they came from originally, and the fact they're serving the Roman Empire and maintaining the frontier. And I suppose that sort of local opposition could continue in that sort of situation. Um, Now, things fall apart, you know, when the Roman Empire ceases to control Britain in the early 5th century, things fall apart. And we know from archaeological excavations that a lot of these communities the forts remain in place and perhaps they've become war bands you know in the locality and at this stage possibly if you're living in a settlement nearby to one of these forts uh, it might be in your interest to uh, seek the support of a local war leader because they may well help defend you so things may change very dramatically through time in the late roman period but I, I think one of the things i would say i think it's really interesting to, to contrast these different frontier works to each other when we look at modern frontier works i think i see a major difference between Hadrian's war and any of the modern frontiers that i can think of and when i say modern frontiers i mean anything that's mid-20th century and later because modern frontier works tend to be very short-lived i mean national boundaries maintain themselves Occasionally, wars lead to changes, not in Europe recently, luckily. But the Second World War obviously led to some changes in the boundaries of different nations. But frontier works do not survive very long, usually. Um, you know, the Iron Curtain didn't survive for that long, if you view it against Hadrian's Wall. And it's now completely gone. And there are traces of the wall in Berlin, which I spent a couple of trips to Berlin really enjoying exploring. In terms of the Roman frontiers, that frontier didn't last that long and uh, trump's wall you know if it's a coherent thing at all we don't know how long that will last as a wall i suspect it won't last 300 years (laughs) so is the modern world different from the ancient world or the frontiers actually this is going back to the point i was making about being very flexible methodologically because to me, can you really compare Hadrian's Wall? I mean, obviously you can compare Hadrian's Wall to Trump's Wall, but are they really at all the same thing? I mean, are they examples of completely different things in completely different contexts that just look vaguely similar?
0: I suspect there could be a lot of disagreement on this point, but personally, I think that they can be compared in terms of intention behind their construction, and they can be compared in the different ways that they develop. They have similarities in the sense that both are transformative features, but not transformative in the same sense or way. So you certainly can't say that Hadrian's Wall and Trump's Wall are comparable in the physical sense. I'm going to go back on an old archaeology standpoint here and say that the comparison is useful because it proves how different the features are.
1: Hadrian's Wall is a really interesting example of that consciousness thing because it's one of the few monuments uh, that we can actually track down through time. Uh, I wrote a book um, nine years ago, it's published nine years ago, on the sort of afterlife of Hadrian's Wall. And, Unlike almost all archaeological monuments, actually, the wall is quite well known through time. Um, we know that um, it's written about by two early medieval clerics, and Gildas, so they knew about this wall in the 6th and 8th century. And then we know it's pretty famous in the medieval period, because it gets marked on maps of Britain. So you have these early maps of Britain, Matthew Paris's maps, in the medieval period, which show... Um, some of the towns and the rivers and some of the geographical features of Britain. um, But they also mark this wall, which is called the Picts Wall. So it's the wall built against the Picts, according to that term. And obviously, in the Renaissance, it becomes very famous, and it's been researched and studied ever since the 16th century and the late 15th century. So unlike um, if you take Stonehenge, which is a monument that Hadrian's Wall is often compared to in importance, we really know nothing apart from uh, what the archaeologists have discovered digging in the landscape around there, um, what people thought about Stonehenge. I think until certainly the medieval period, you know, obviously the monument was still there. Both monuments survived in the landscape, but we do not know how people uh, conceived it and interpreted Stonehenge. We have some information for Hadrian's Wall. Unfortunately, we have very little Roman information because classical writers didn't really write about it. So we have much, much more, really, from and gildas than we do from any classical writers, which has had a major impact on how we interpret the wall. But I, I think I would say the afterlife of monuments is really interesting, isn't it? Uh, the Berlin Wall, again, which I've traced to an extent, it gets sort of commemorated and monumentalized in the modern landscape of Berlin. But the initial phase, as I understand it, after it, ceased to operate, it was being demolished and pulled apart, and people were taking bits of it away um, as mementos, and they had to actually conserve it, because it was going to be totally removed. So I think you're right, um, Trump's wall, I mean, to, to me, some of the plans that Trump was getting developed for his wall were about monumentalizing. So he was looking, I, I think, in some of those plans to build something quite substantial and monumental. But how do you build a really substantial, monumental frontier along such a long border or frontier, especially if you can't get the support of all the politicians who you need to support you to do it? Uh, that 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 borderline, frontier line, is far, far longer than the line taken by Hadrian's Wall. But I think you're right. I think the modern world, uh, some people suggest the modern world runs much faster. You know, things happen much more quickly as a result of changes and Technology. I don't know. I don't know. I think things could happen very quickly in the Roman Empire. If things started falling apart, if you had an uprising, you couldn't control it. Things could fall out of control very quickly. Perhaps all as much as anything as an attempt to construct an infrastructure which will control disorder, if you want. So perhaps the ancient world and the modern world can't be set apart as binaries of each other.
0: And I think that that's an excellent and salient point to leave this discussion on temporarily whilst we go for another ad break when we get back we'll definitely be talking about reception of the wall and some of the artistic projects which have been developed recently there because for centuries the wall itself has been an inspiration for both local people and people from further away in terms of artistic productions
2: you may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. <laughs>
1: And the wall, law, I, I agree. And the wall also means a lot more than the Roman military occupation of that landscape, partly because of all these stories and uh, messages that the post Roman ages give us about the wall. I, I was looking in this project over a decade ago at the afterlife of the wall. And we had a look, we had a grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council to run a project called Tales of the Frontier for three years. And I was looking at a lot of the sort of issues that come to the fore along the walls, so things to do with the later landscape, which tie into the wall in some way. And those connections can be quite loose. So some things, um, we have a number of paintings of the wall, for instance. I mean, one of the most famous is Wellington Hall in Northumberland, which is a National Trust property just north of the wall. But we have um, poems and uh, we have plays that have been produced about life on the wall. But we also have much more um, esoteric things like folk stories about the nature of the wall. So we know that in the 19th century, that there were lots of tales about spirits along the wall, uh, giants and other sort of on the line or friendly spirits who lived along the wall. Unfortunately, most of those stories have been lost because they weren't recorded. Um, we just have hints of stories through place names and the odd thing that's recorded. One of my favourite is that uh, this comes from a nineteenth-century travel book that uh, uh, the wall was built in one night by a a female giant. So all these things, and there are lots of them get entangled to me in the history of the wall, and they become part of the wall. And these stories or these forms of knowledge that local communities have are part of that, if you can get to them. One of the ideas we had, which we never carried through as a result of the Sales of the Frontier project, was to set up an ethnographic project which would actually interview people living along the line of the wall and visitors to the wall, to see young Uh, how they interpreted the wall and what they felt was important about it. And um, one of the things that really interested me at that stage was whether any of these folk stories that I've managed to find fragments of from 19th century accounts actually survived in local memory. And that could be because people have talked about them for the last... 150 years. It could be because somebody's been reading some of these sources that so I looked at and found the stories and reinvented them. But it, it sort of wouldn't matter too much to me why they how they were passed down. I'd be interested in the different forms of ideas people had about the monument. Because Hadrian's Wall is such a famous monument. Uh, Praying Law is a really important site, too. It's one of the best, best, most important Iron Age hill forts in Britain, I suppose, for various reasons but it's not anything like as well-known as Hadrian's Wall. So what is local knowledge about the wall? What do people think about the wall? We have more knowledge of what visitors think about the wall because there have been some projects that have actually interviewed visitors to the wall, usually to look at what their requests and desires are for visitor services, so you know what is done well and what's not done well at the monuments along the wall. Um, But I'd also be interested in how visitors interpret the wall, because we don't really know how visitors think about wall as a historic and archeological monument, because the interviews have concentrated on marketing and increasing the number of visitors for economic reasons. Now, we never carried through this ethnographic project. Uh, I think it would still be really fun to do. Uh, we did do another project, which was interviewing people at open-air museums, across Britain. So we interviewed people at a number of the Iron Age open-air museums, Butser Ancient Farm, for instance, and we interviewed people at Vindalanda. So we went to eight heritage venues in Britain and interviewed largely people working the places, guides and staff. But the wall, I think, would be such a massive project to do because it's such a lengthy monument and there are millions of people living within its sort of curtilage. I was partly inspired thinking about this, and perhaps I should still do this project by some work I came across where some anthropologists had interviewed several generations of people who lived along the line of the Iron Curtain. So they didn't interviewed people from both sides of the Iron Curtain, and they didn't interviewed young people who'd grown up after the Iron Curtain had been demolished. They interviewed middle-aged people who'd lived there while it was operating, and they interviewed all people who were there when it was built. And I found it really fascinating. I heard a presentation of this and read a couple of articles, how much those different generations' views of the Iron Curtain differed. And I also found it quite challenging because having grown up with parents who told me the Iron Curtain was a really evil thing, and I still tend to think it probably was, some of the respondents they interviewed actually felt that the old system easterly, the Iron Curtain, uh, gave them a better life than the new system. And I'm not making a political point there. I'm being very reasonable. I know anyone's saying that. But I think that challenges me a bit and my attitudes to you know the nature of this frontier and the nature of the regimes that operated east of the frontier. There are plenty of people who condemn those regimes too, I should say, from both sides of the walk from my study. If we could go back to the Roman past and interview people in the landscape of Hadrian's Wall, if if we could build a sign machine and find some way of understanding the concepts of people who lived 2,000 years ago, which I think would be tremendously difficult as a process, what would we find? I mean, I don't think interviewing people in the modern landscape would in any way replace You know, the idea of being able to do something like that, which is directly impossible, but uh, it would still tell us a lot more about monuments. And I I suppose I'm lucky, as you are working with a university system, that I don't have to think about economic factors. So if I'm trying to interview people, I don't need to think about whether my interviewing will help economically to market the wall. Now, I'm very keen to help market the wall. I should say I have a role. I've had a role in helping to do that for over a decade with a management plan partnership that looks after the wall, but it's not what I'm employed to do. So I can be much more interested in how people think about monuments. And I share share your interest in that. I I think we've had very little work that's actually looked at the attitudes of communities to their monuments. We have had some, but we've had very little. So could you go out and actually formally interview some of the people who are under
0: so I have actually been fortunate enough to engage with people living around the Trapane law landscape now. And it's uncovered some really interesting factors, actually. Landscape studies is something that I'm often engaged with and I don't think that it should really be acceptable to study a landscape without engaging with modern communities. And actually what I've tended to come across is a clear disparity between how interaction with the landscape and with a monument occurs. Many of the individuals within these landscapes now do not associate directly with past historical I would more say, ancient communities which were resident within the landscape. And in that way, that distances them from feeling particular ownership over monuments like Drapane Law. But they feel a direct sense of ownership of the landscape itself. And in that sense, they feel ownership of the monument within its setting in the landscape. There is a consciousness, at least amongst those I interviewed with the site itself and the landscape but it's a case of where not who or how and it's linked to a profound sense of ownership of the landscape itself now if we were talking about historical communities say within the last two three hundred years i think there'd be more of a connection with who and how those people and communities interacted with the landscape But certainly considering the Iron Age site of Trapain Law, that is definitely more a connection of where, because that site itself is now intrinsically a part of the landscape. I think truly you can say something similar of Hadrian's Wall, because the connection is that it's situated within its landscape. Because now people don't think of that landscape without thinking about Hadrian's wall.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I found that really interesting. We, we have a bit of work um, by artists or interviewing of artists or commissioning of artists to create artworks along the wall. One of the ones that really strikes me, I'm afraid I can't remember the details the books on my bookcase behind me, but um, there was a project called Writing the Wall over a decade ago. And they actually invited quite a number of artists to the wall landscape. To reflect on the wall, and they had, I think, uh, an artist from, where was it, from somewhere in the Far East, who very much related to the Tigris boatmen, who were stationed at one point on the east end of Hadrian's Wall, so they were probably actually, you know, maintaining boats, maintaining water communication there, and he sailed at the time with an archaeologist I know very well. He, he came, he created a poem about this landscape and he was talking about slaves under the same sky. Now, I found that really interesting because he was reflecting on a Roman auxiliary unit and Roman auxiliary units weren't slaves in Roman terms. I mean, as an auxiliary soldier, you, you'd be recruited in your community and you were sent abroad. So these people had been sent to the east end of Hadrian's Wall to serve, but they weren't technically slaves. It's a reflection on British imperialism and the enslavement of people within the British Empire, um, rather than the literal reflection on Hadrian's Wall. But that's a sort of archaeological response to... So the poem, I actually liked the poem a lot, and I thought it was a really interesting issue. It made me start thinking a it, and I think this is how art can be really useful, especially when it's created by people with a very different background to you, either regionally or uh, religiously, or in terms of age or gender, because it made me start thinking a bit more about auxiliary soldiers, because what happened to you if you were an auxiliary soldier, you had to be a man and you had to be free, but did you actually have very much power? I mean, basically, you you would have somebody very much an authority over you, so you'd have somebody ruling your community. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if young men all across the empire were told that they were going to go and join the Roman auxiliaries and sent off, rather than, you know, the image that I think reenactors have quite often is that you volunteered, you like the idea of having a military career, and you love the idea of going somewhere different. Perhaps, I don't know, the modern army might be a bit more like that in Britain at the moment. We're not at war. It certainly wasn't. At times, the country was in trouble. You didn't have very very much choice. If you did have a choice, you got... I mean, I haven't experienced this in my lifetime, but uh, my parents' generation did. You were very much treated extremely badly by society if you wouldn't join in. So were roman auxiliary soldiers always volunteers who went willingly or were a lot of them forced to actually do it now i think uh, reflecting through roman archaeology on the injustices of british imperialism is a deeply important important thing to do because one of the things it does is helps it bring uh, those issues back to our own nation if you want and hopefully helps uh, encourage people who might be a bit resistant about thinking about imperialism in negative terms to think a bit more openly that's probably an optimistic assumption on my part i think we have two groups of people in the country this is a simplification i think we do have two groups of people we have people who are very willing to think critically about imperialism and we have other people who want to glamorize it for some reason that they really don't understand and issues to do with slavery are very deeply caught up in that. I think it's one of the really potentially important aspects of Hadrian's Wall and the Roman archaeology of Britain, that it really does help communicate a lot of these issues that are fundamentally important in our society today and which we need really to encourage people towards greater tolerance. Even people who are fairly tolerant, I think, could be more tolerant and people who aren't tolerant. I'd like to encourage insofar as I have any power, which I really don't but I'd like to encourage them towards greater tolerance. One of the funny things about, I mean, you might have a very different perspective of this from me, I realise, but one of the nice things about teaching in university is I do find the vast majority of people I teach seem to believe, those, to believe that argument. And it's very rare for me to come across any students who object to being taught about decolonizing the agenda, for instance, which is something we're very much promoting along with... <laughs> most universities in Britain, um, but I think it's a deeply important thing. And I think Roman archaeology has a major role in that.
0: Yes, the decolonization strategy is, it's a really quite brilliant uptake in universities across the country right now. And I hope that it continues to develop because it's not perfect at the minute. I mean, the only issue that I've recurringly come across is that it's difficult to apply decolonisation when it is so linked to imperialistic attitudes, um, specifically the British Empire, to earlier periods that we study, like prehistory. Not because there's a lack of empire, obviously the Roman Empire is one of the most famous empires there ever was. No, I find that the issue is more one of tribal identity. Speaking from an Iron Age perspective, there's been a lot of reductionism over a lot of years to curate a unified tribal culture. And this is in part the fault of those that embraced Celtic revivalism and this has romanticised the idea of the Celt to such an extent that quite often in more broad literature, even where they're known, individual tribal names are neglected for the overarching term Celt. And this is relevant because it's very difficult to recover a culture whose identity has been completely lost. Your point about imperialism and Hadrian's Wall being a good example of structural imperialism is really quite brilliant. I'd really like to go further and highlight that, in a way, I believe the Iron Age people were early decolonizers. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, in decolonization, a short history, there are approximately five stages of decolonization which are described. And the first of these is rediscovery or recovery. And that's where the previously colonised actively rediscover their own cultural roots. Upon Roman retreat from Hadrian's Wall, this is exactly what some Iron Age people seem to have done. And, as an archaeologist, it is the physical remains of this which I can relate to. The Iron Age people are perhaps characterised archaeologically by their roundhouses. Whilst under Roman occupation, some individuals do seem to have still rebelliously built their houses round, or perhaps simply the Romans didn't care. But when the Romans left, not only were a lot of the major structures which Romans built completely abandoned, and despite the examples of buildings which were more structurally sound perhaps certainly more permanent which the romans had provided iron age people largely returned to building their round houses faced with either assuming the place the romans had left or going back and recovering what they had before it seems that iron age people chose to look behind and essentially decolonize themselves now, the truth is likely not black and white on this, but it certainly seems like that first stage of decolonization described in a short history. Now, the introduction of decolonization into this discussion is really interesting, but I would be really interested to know where you see another aspect of heritage studies going in this respect in terms of public communication in terms of boundaries borders and frontiers how do we communicate the newer research to do with these to the general public or more specifically how do we do this for heritage sites such as hadrian's wall personally i really see the value of current events being used to inspire theoretical and more artistic Approaches to boundaries, borders, and frontiers in the past, places like Hadrian's Wall.
1: Yeah, it's typical, it's, it's really. We have this um, frontiers gallery in Tully House Museum in Carlisle, and that is partly quite a traditional display of objects derived from the excavations in Carlisle, which was there was a Roman fort, or actually, two Roman forts in Carlisle, but also it developed into a town during the uh, second, third. 4th centuries. But the main part of the Frontiers Gallery is an attempt to get people to think about frontiers through time. So there's a wall in the Frontiers Gallery which has a sort of panel that is the shape of the World Heritage Site running along Hadrian's Wall. And they project onto this in some way I don't really understand from behind, I'm sure. Lots of scenes of conflict uh, and trouble on frontiers in the modern world. And they're trying to get people to think about frontiers. I mean, what they're trying to do is get people to think tolerably about issues of migration and issues of the responsibility of nations in this world that is so fractious. And this has been in place for over a okay decade now, I think. And I think that's a very good attempt to get people to think about frontiers in a slightly different way, a more critical way, and to inspire them to try and understand some of the uh, ethical responsibilities that people living in wealthy countries have towards people who are in very, very desperate situations in other countries. But it slightly concerns me that they have a board on which people can pin little messages in this gallery, which is a common thing that museums use. And I saw a message once when I was visiting, which I think was written by a child because it was a sort of, you know, it, it was childish style writing, saying, I wish I'd lived in the past. And I think this was possibly inspired by the rather glamorous images of Roman living in the gallery and in the museum, a rather critical reflection on frontiers in the same gallery. Um, And it made me a bit sad because, you know, I'd rather live in the present, to be honest. I know things may be problematic, but if we'd had a pandemic in the Roman period, we wouldn't have had lots of wonderful scientists and medical practitioners helping us to live through it. There are lots of things about the modern world which are preferable. I think that's a tension in how we interpret the wall because I think as an academic and somebody who's concerned about the modern world, I would very much like to encourage people to think critically about where we are today and behave ethically or, you know, understand the world in a way which is a bit more inclusive and less problematic. At the same time, if we do that, we potentially undermine the people who might come to the wall and try and understand it in the first place because some of them might be put off. I suppose if you're saying, I wish I'd lived in the past, that might be an indication you're going to be fascinated by the Roman past in the future, which would be good for me and potentially for universities and for archaeology in general. But uh, I do think it's hard to know. I think one of the major things about war being more positive is it's a major economic generator in this area of the country which isn't that well off parts of the world's course are actually quite deprived landscapes. within Tyneside and some of the landscapes some around Carlisle. Uh, it brings lots of people in and this inclusive, positive agenda, which is really dominant on Hadrian's Wall, I think is a good way of encouraging people to come and enjoy their visits. And perhaps we can be subtle in the way we communicate the problematic messages when we communicate. And then I think the Frontiers Gallery does a very good job and perhaps being more positive about that gallery and the museum in general, the sort of more enabling stuff about the Roman period or the prehistoric period or the medieval period balances out the rather more critical display of modern frontiers, which tries to draw the Roman frontier into that equation. So it's not trying to tell people that life was better in the Roman past. I feel I could understand how a child might pick up those messages and I'm sure other people do too. We glamorize the Roman past. We glamorize the Iron Age past too. I'd rather rather live in the present. And when I see people at heritage sites who are worrying about the present, or I feel they may be worrying about the present, I try to communicate that message above everything else. I think we're still pretty lucky in a fairly wealthy country, but I would feel that, wouldn't I? I'm a professor in a very good archaeology department (laughs) in England.
0: Oh, God. this Yeah, this is a problem. Um, The glamorization of the past. And I think most historians, archaeologists or heritage professionals have at some point been haunted by that question of if you could go back, would you? As an example, I once had that question asked to me in an interview for a university, which is going to remain unnamed. And I really don't think they liked my answer, which was no, (laughs) just no. But the issue is surely that if this question is being asked even in that sort of setting, then there is inherently a fictionalisation of what we do every day as archaeologists. And having worked in a few museum settings myself, I would say that this can particularly be a problem in a museum environment. Because the priority is always to communicate facts about the past, whenever that past is, to an audience which is really diverse And often the best way to communicate these things to younger people is through story. It's been proven to be a really effective medium. But of course, the problem with story is that it has that aspect of fantasy.
1: Yeah, so I think it's one of the problems we face that people actually believe what we're taught at school. And uh, basically, teachers understandably have to really simplify the past and not necessarily to deal with all the issues. I think teachers try very hard to give a balanced account of how the past was. But I think one of the major problems that's occurred in my field of research is the argument that occurred over the idea that we might have Africans living in Roman Britain, which Mary Beard particularly um, got involved in a fractious argument with a few people who wouldn't tolerate the idea we had Africans living in Roman Britain. Now we know, we know quite simply, I can say I don't believe in evidence, but we can state without any doubt there were Africans living in Roman Britain. But I wonder to what extent that's to do with communication in school, of the idea that Roman Britain was a period which is very instrumental in our past, where the Romans civilized people in Southern Britain and they went away again in the early fifth century. And the Africans don't occur in that story at all at school. Now, there's been some education material produced recently to try and communicate those stories, which has been accused of being very political in trying to suggest there were Africans in Roman Britain, but we know there were. And, you know, when Mary Beard comes up against people or Hella Eckhart comes up against people who deny the fact that we're uh, Africans in Roman Britain, to what extent is that? Because they're believing what they were taught at school, which we're contradicting and therefore we must be political. The truth is, I mean, we are political. You know, we're trying to, I I think most of us are hoping for a more tolerant society, which is a political attitude. If we live in a country that's getting less tolerant, we'll become more and more of a political attitude, but it's one that I think a lot of people in academia deeply believe in, which we need to keep going, I think, and we need to encourage more. And ethnography could be a way of interacting with people to try and make some people a bit more open to those sort of ideas. A lot of people are, I should say. Most of the people we talk to in museums and uh, heritage centres are tolerant, very tolerant to those ideas. We need to get our messages through to other people, try and persuade them that we have reasons for arguing it rather than being politically biased.
0: You're absolutely correct that there's this issue in terms of early years study and the theory and information which is provided in a school setting currently in the UK. Having had some input on resources provided and having to use these resources in my own teaching I found that decolonization and inclusivity are ideas which are more increasingly being communicated through the text passages of textbooks, which is a move in the right direction. The issue is, however, that the accompanying images within these textbooks often continue to proliferate old ideas. A lot of these images just don't include diverse communities. Apart from that, another example is the age-old issue of women being gatherers and men being represented as hunters within the hunter-gatherer discussion. This is even more of an issue because currently within the history exam structure, one of the first questions a student will come across is one which requires them to analyse a source of evidence. And sometimes these are the very same or similar images to those included in their textbooks. And so an insightful commentary would include the fact that, hang on, this isn't showing a diverse community. Or hang on, it's showing the balance of work and power between male and female as really, really divisive. But the student has already been desensitized to these images. And often these more academic discussions aren't had within the classroom. This is in no way a criticism of teachers who do their absolute best with the resources and curriculum which they're given by government. I would argue that the issue is much more deep-seated. The system we have now encourages memorization of facts in humanities subjects, and that in no way encourages or creates an intelligent insightful researcher and this leads us quite nicely into the tangent time which is essentially where I talk about something which is related but not entirely in keeping with our main topic because I'm an archaeologist and that means I can't focus on one single thing for any amount of time I'll blame it on that but it could just be me As we've already talked about in this episode, Hadrian's Wall, for example, has had a lot of art associated with it over the years, from medieval and 17th century depictions in watercolour or just in sketch form, to modern projects which have attempted to rediscover the wall in a different way. From that poem we talked about, which uncovered a way of thinking about Roman slavery, which hadn't perhaps been immediately obvious, to more large-scale representations, such as the 2012 art installation called Connecting Light, whereby a 73-mile stretch of Hadrian's Wall was illuminated in what the artist described as an inverse wall, an attempt to present Hadrian's wall not as a barrier but as a bridge. The thing that this highlights is just how art can help people to understand and interpret heritage sites differently. Art really can be really inspiring to the visitor, to the researcher and to the student. Borders, boundaries and frontiers can be really divisive and negative things. Sometimes, through art, we attempt to highlight this negativity. Sometimes we attempt to dispel it and to encourage reinterpretation. Sometimes art in and about these places is intended as a way for communities to heal from the divide which has sometimes been imposed on them. There's not a person alive who doesn't have some form of boundary, border or frontier of their own. That's some physical representation, or whether it's more theoretical or philosophical. We've already established that these terms are difficult to define, so, and this is just a suggestion create something. Create something which represents to you a boundary, a border, or a frontier which you are familiar with. We've mentioned several times in this podcast episode, the tolerance of society. Boundaries, borders and frontiers are often physical representations of the level of that tolerance. Through the act of creating something, an individual might begin to understand what a boundary, a border or a frontier means to them just a little more. And with understanding comes illumination and tolerance. Unfortunately, it looks like I might have set you a little bit of homework again, so we'll leave it there. And thanks for listening to this episode of Flipside. You'll find us on APN every month or any other major streaming platform. That means Apple, Spotify. You know, thanks ever so much to our guest this month, Professor Richard Hingley. Goodbye and I'll see you next month on the flip side.
2: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just 7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com/members for more info.